Hello and welcome to The Successionistas, a brand new weekly podcast recapping and discussing the award-winning HBO TV show that we're all obsessed with, Succession. I'm Anna Bogutska, I'm a writer, broadcaster, podcaster and Succession superfan. And I'm Mike Munzer, a producer and podcaster and Succession obsessive. And in this podcast, over the next few weeks, we'll be taking you through the highs and lows of the Roy family saga beginning with recaps of the first three seasons in anticipation of season four, premiering on the 26th of March. Then once the fourth and final season starts airing, we'll be going episode by episode, putting out deep dives every Tuesday after the show airs. But this week it's episode one, so Anna and I will be discussing season one of this brilliant show about awful people. You are a fucking nobody. Fucking nobody. Mike, for the listeners who might have never heard us podcast before, who who are you? Who are you? And why are you why are you podcasting about succession? Well, it's a good question actually, because for anyone who for anyone who has heard me on a podcast or has heard us two podcast together, Anna, they've most likely heard us talk about horror together, right? I I'm I'm very much a uh, uh, a horror fan. I do the Evolution of Horror podcast. Um, I am a podcaster and journalist and producer. Um, but I think for quite a few years now, right, Anna, we've, you know, in all our time sort of doing horror stuff together, we have also talked a lot about Succession, haven't we? And we would message each other each week after each episode of Succession. Um, and so I think finally we thought now is the time, right? It's now is the time for uh, for us to, as as all podcasters do, decide that other people out there in the world should hear our discussions about succession. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've been we've been actually talking for a bit of a background. We were considering doing this when season three was airing, and we got too busy and didn't have time, and and then finally when the season four was announced, and then when it was announced that it was the last one, you know what? It's now or never. Yeah. We need exactly. to we need it's to grab the succession zeitgeist, and <laughs> I am I'm also a, a podcaster. I host the Final Girls podcast, which is also about horror films. But just like Mike, I contain multitudes and actually <laughs> do a lot of work, mostly writing uh, and other broadcast work around uh, non-horror film and TV. And I wrote about Succession quite a bit when the when the third season was airing. And, you know, like, I've loved this series for a while and always wanted to have a space where I could fully dive into it. Mm. Uh, because I feel like I haven't uh, had the opportunity to do that. I've my first book, Unlikable Female Characters, is coming out at, or later this year. And I obviously rewatched Succession in preparation for that as well and wrote a little bit about Siobhan Roy in that book too. But yes, I just, any, do you know what? Let's be real. Any excuse to rewatch the show, any excuse to podcast with my friend, any excuse to podcast about these deeply messy super rich floppy characters 100 percent agree and it's funny you know i was thinking like this is basically the first kind of non-horror podcast i've done but then actually thinking about it and re-watching it this is more horrific than a lot of horror out there this tv <laughs> show right it is it is dark and we will get into it <laughs> my son that was your best shot you lost. I think there's some doubt as to whether he lost. Weren't and Kendall, Frank, Asha, Alona, 
off the board, fired with immediate uh, effect. I don't think you're able to security. do that. Security! I'm in the middle of turning a fucking Dad, bank of Frank. You're you don't fired. need to call security. I have some doubt. I'm in the middle of turning a fucking tanker! Yeah! Frank! You're fired! Mike, when did you first become a successionista? <laughs> I think I, I probably came to it probably around the same time as a lot of people did, which was slightly after the first season. I think it was during season two of Succession. And I suddenly started to hear more and more and more about this show. Uh, people talking about it online, about how incredible it is. And I think it was around 2020. It might have even been during the pandemic, during lockdown, when I was desperate for new things to watch. And so me and my wife were like, well, we've heard good things about this Succession show. All of season one is available to binge. Let's go for it. And I do remember thinking initially I was I was a little bit unsure in the first couple of episodes. I was like, this is very smart, very well written, great acting, but I hate all of these people. <laughs> and I was like, can I stick with this? Can I keep watching a show where all of these people are so unbelievably irredeemable, you know? Um, but by, and I'm sure we'll talk about this as we go with season one, but by about ep five, ep six... I was like, oh, this show is genius. And I was just completely obsessed. <laughs> uh, and then and then at some point during season two, I was sort of fully caught up and watching it weekly. And it was, you know, the best thing on television for me. Absolutely incredible. What about you? When did you first come to it? Well, I was thinking about it in advance of this chat. And I think I remember very vividly, it was maybe winter 2019. So it's pre-pandemic. And I was at my parents' flat in Barcelona. And I was coming up with any excuse to not, you know, hang out. And <laughs> I started watching I started watching the show and partly because I was, I'm a big reader of Vulture and they were doing these recaps of, I want to say, season two. Yeah. And I sort of stumbled upon them and said, oh, I haven't, I haven't seen this, but I've seen it around online. What is this? And I started watching, I think I watched an episode of season two first and then I went back to season one. Mm to kind of catch up because season two was about to end or something like that. And I became fully obsessed. Yeah. And I binged the first season. I binged as much of what, of what was out of season two. And weirdly enough, I think it might be too telling about my own person. I was not at all put off by how uh, <laughs> unlikable everyone was. I loved the mess. Yeah. I love the mess. I love the swearing. I love swearing in general. And I yep. swear a lot of my life. <laughs> I just appreciated the artfulness of how they elevated the swear, <laughs> the word fuck. <laughs> and just, I remember like the acting. So I, I knew Brian Cox because he's, mm. uh, you know, has done so much theater, so much film. And, but kind of always knew him as a character actor. I've, I've you know, aside from sort of Manhunter and a couple of other leading roles, I've never really seen him this way. Yeah. And I had no idea who Jeremy Strong was, who Sarah Snook was. I knew Kieran Culkin and Alan Ruck and Matthew McFadden, but that is it. Yeah. And I was like, this is a weird combo. Like, it looks, it's going to be trash, but maybe I'll enjoy it. Yeah. And it was Shakespearean, like, yeah. which is probably the most basic way of talking about succession at this point. But it really did struck me as this unbelievably dense and funny drama. 
Yeah. It had all those points of prestige television in uh, the, you know, the apex of prestige television. But at the same time, it was bringing something so hilarious and so raw. Like there was so much emotion at the heart of each character. There were such fucked up little children yes. <laughs> operating, you know, at the highest of corporate greed and corporate America that I was completely drawn into it. Yeah. And then every time I've rewatched uh, this series since, it's been... It's been both funnier and more emotional than I ever remembered it being. And by the time season three came along, it was like a full on obsession. Yeah. Yeah. Like full on. It was for a while. It was on my Hinge profile <laughs> uh, for a while. Like I just constantly rewatched the series that already were out there just for fun. Uh, it was it, it became like a very intense. Yeah. <laughs> obsession. yeah, it is. And, you know, you're right. You know, everyone everyone floats the word Shakespeare around it these days partly because the story feels very king lear of course like this idea of who is going to Mm -hmm. succeed and 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 claim the throne but also the language like you say like the way in which the way in which swearing can become so poetic a put down can be just absolute like pure poetry in this yeah absolutely beautiful jesse armstrong the guy who created it you know he's got He's got such a brilliant kind of way with words, I think, you know, and obviously he came from a lot of British sort of sitcoms and that kind of thing, right? Shows like Peep Show and Fresh Meat. He kind of had a hand in in stuff like In the Loop as well. So that kind of like sharp, quite dark comedy, he's always been really great at, but it just, everything comes together so beautifully in this show. I vividly remember the day when I realized that Jesse Armstrong had also made Fresh Meat and Mm -hmm. Peep Show. I think my brain exploded and I could, (laughs) because I had also just watched the all of all the entirety of peep show uh for the first time and i just i could not comprehend and at the same time it makes complete sense and why do you think it is that this show has become so successful i mean like originally jesse armstrong kind of had this idea that he wanted to make a show about the murdoch family right and then he also had this uh, these other like seeds in his head of making a show about wall street and he kind of ended up kind of combining to come up with this fictional family that are essentially the murdochs but not right um and like i said it is a show about pretty awful irredeemable people why do you think this show right now has done so well? Well, I think we're going through, and there's been so many think pieces written about it that it's kind of old news at this point, but the Eat the Rich subgenre has become the it genre, yes. both in film and television. And I think Succession was one of the early ones that did something different, as in we have always glorified and, you know, luxuriated in the world of extreme wealth. Mm. And I'm talking from, you know, reality TV shows like The Lifestyles of the Rich and the Famous way back in the 80s. Yeah. Or, you know, MTV Cribs, which would go into kind of the houses of pop stars and uh, famous rich performers and whatnot Mm -hmm. to you know dynasty and dallas and like just you want to see the lives of people who have so much money yeah they literally nothing is unattainable to them right you know and now we have the white lotus uh we have you know on the film side the menu we have parasite you know all of these films that are kind of looking at you know the the uber rich are actually fundamentally horrible yeah which you know sure who does who wouldn't agree but succession (laughs) has this thing of the people at the at the center are actually 
don't they're so rich they don't actually care about the money yeah and their world is and i'm sure we'll talk about the directing uh and kind of the visuals a bit later on but the world of succession is deeply unappealing yes it is it's ugly it's it's extremely wealthy but it's not glorified it's not fetishized it is not beautiful like all of these enormous marbled like penthouses in new york and these villas and you know townhouses Mm -hmm. uh in cheltenham and whatever they're not appealing by any stretch of the imagination and that is so deliberate so we're seeing i think this is why kind of the the show has grasped us culturally so much because the characters are so beautifully drawn mm-hmm. where they are they are fully formed. They're fully formed human beings who are deeply tortured and deeply wounded and um, at the same time incredibly watchable because of how sloppy and messy and fucked up they are yeah. in ways that are kind of relatable to anyone. Anyone who has a family of any kind of uh, dynamic can probably relate to at least one of the Roys. Um and then at the same time, because it has absolutely no intention of glamorizing the world of extreme wealth, it actually just makes it so visually unappealing that it it makes it almost for a more satisfying watch because you're not feeling shit about yourself yeah. if you're not uber wealthy. Yeah, yeah. Like who would want to put a, uh, a napkin over their head while they bite the head off a pigeon or whatever it is in a in a restaurant right oh it's God, like yeah. this is this is not <laughs> appealing to me uh yeah and i think you're right and i think the thing that i kind of struggled initially wa- with was like what are the stakes here for these people because they have everything like there is no like i think that this was the thing that i thought initially i'm like these people mm. are the 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 one percent they have literally everything mm. they could want and i think this is part of the tragedy and this is part of the genius of the story is that they can still never ever ever find happiness these people right they don't care about the money but in one way or another they want power they want love they want respect and they and they do not get that from anyone in their family or from anyone in their life essentially right and you know i think Kendall will talk about you know as one of the most tragic characters in the center of this because it feels like all he wants is to be liked and respected right and 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 you know there are times when I shout at these characters I'm like just go and live on an island and be happy somewhere like why are you bothering to embroil yourself in this awful world of your dad's business when you could literally do anything with your life but they can't help it right they need that power they need that attention even connor who is separate to everything else wants to be president because he wants something to do and he wants some power and the you know the the fascinating tragedy about this story is is yeah exactly is is watching these people who who technically have everything but sort of have nothing as well, like nothing of worth, I suppose, at the same time. Well, it's it's quite an interesting question because they are, the on the one hand, they're all striving for something. Yeah. They're constantly wanting something else, be that a version of respect, of power, or of love. But at the same time, they are desperate to maintain the status quo yeah. in which they find themselves yeah. so even the name Roy and there's a there's a great moment when Tom and Shiv are talking in the car about Tom possibly taking the name Roy yeah. uh, instead of Shiv becoming Roy <laughs> Wamsgangs yeah. or, or Shiv Wamsgangs and there's just withering look that Sarah Snook gives him and it's because we 
Tom is the one who understands the power of that name. Like, and he's he wants to take it. He wants to be a part of that because it is by default, without them even doing anything else, already uh, an allegiance to one of the most powerful families that there is around. But they're desperate to maintain that. So be that by association or by relationships. So it, it very often, like, they're not really being governed by their desire for something else it's just for the desire for them to not lose the wealth and the power associated with that name and with their family mm. and then the things that they actually deeply want that would maybe make them happy they consider worthless yeah even though it's the thing that ultimately drives them but i think this is the play with the audience like we see these things mm-hmm. but the, they the characters don't so in a way, and this is kind of, I think, one of the elements that makes watching Succession so enjoyable is that we are always kind of smarter than the characters, at least emotionally more intelligent. Yeah. Because their particular tics and traumas are kind of so evident to everyone except the Roys themselves. To the it, And because of that, it becomes comical. Yeah. Like, you know, we'll talk about Roman later on, but Roman's Oedipal complex is so on the nose yeah. that it is funny to every, everyone except himself. Exactly that. They're so, I mean, that's the thing. These characters are so rich in every sense of the word, right? <laughs> they are so richly drawn in yeah. their performance, in the way they're written. Uh, and they are fascinating to look in on. They are fascinating to look at and to study these people. And um, and I think you're right about that idea of them wanting to maintain the status quo. And this is another thing that makes this show so timely right now. You said that there's this kind of wave of eat the rich movies that we've had, you know, The White Lotus and other things like that. And I think, you know, this is it. Times have changed and we are in this time of reckoning uh, when it comes to the kind of white privileged rich people of the world right you know the world is now looking at them and scrutinizing them a lot more than it ever used to and that kind of plays into succession doesn't it that things were different back in the 1970s or even 1990s but nowadays the roy family have got to be a little bit more careful and that's that is what makes the drama so intriguing in this show as well before we sort of dive into um the our conversation about the the first series i think one of the things that really struck me going back and re-watching it is is paying attention to the look and feel of the show you know mm. it's also quite an interesting show to watch in how it's directed yeah. and how it looks because it has a sort of handheld mockumentary style but definitely not going down the office route right and it's also not trying to uh, make the settings or the houses or the richness of it all look terribly appealing. So it's sort of, what do you think about the way that um, Succession looks and the way that it's directed? Oh, I love the way that this show looks. And yeah, I think you're right. You know, there's that feeling that everything is happening in the moment. There is a handheld camera kind of technique that runs throughout, right? There are very few kind of... Uh, conventionally framed kind of conservatively framed shots it all feels very handheld and that makes everything feel very authentic and very immediate Mm. and it does bring to mind kind of mockumentaries and that kind of thing the camera is constantly all over the place it's whipping from one character to the other and I think what that feels like is it feels like you're dropped into the action and it's almost like the camera itself is trying to keep up with what's going on you know you've got a group of characters in a room one of them says something and then another character over the other side of the room replies with a quip and the camera 
whips round and sort of barely catches it sometimes yes. before another character says something and the camera has to whip round again. And there is this feeling that, you know, and the performances are so good and so real. It feels like it's actually just happening in real time and you were just watching this chaos play out. And I think what you said about the, the production design and the sets is perfect as well. This idea that, yes, they are extremely glamorous locations. You know, they're beautiful mansion houses and apartments and all this kind of thing but they're empty right they are mm. they don't have any kind of personality they feel soulless all of these places and there is something that feels kind of sad about them uh you know it's like where are all of these characters belongings it feels like every few episodes shiv or kendall will just like move house or move flat mm -hmm. and it's like do they actually own stuff do they have clothes do they have artwork do they have belongings that they care about they don't seem to they're so rich that they have people doing things for them at all time and they move around at all time and so there's nothing so as much as we're looking at these incredible locations there is a kind of sadness and emptiness to them as well. That, mixed with the camera work, really kind of brings to life that idea of these people are trapped in this weird world where everything is just chaotic. There's a great video essay online about how about the camera in succession and how it's essentially used as an invisible um, character because a lot of the camera movements and the, and the editing kind of mirrors, like, what if you were a person just in the background seeing all of this transpire like a lot of the really sharp cuts to other people's reactions are kind of part of that it's like oh what is what did how, what did jerry think about this reaction what did what did kendall what is the face that he's making when logan said this thing you know it's like you're constantly looking at other people and trying to size them up engage their reaction read the room and the the direction of the show really gives you that sense of being in the room and trying to get a a read of the power dynamics as they're shifting constantly yes and actually speaking of that so maybe a good chance to talk about the tone as well because i think i think that that style that mockumentary almost style does make you think of comedy like you think of the office mm -hmm. or you know shows like that that are so big and and i think it does give you a chance to laugh a lot of the time you know those kind of those cutaways or those quick pans to somebody's face reacting to something like <laughs> yeah. when when one character gets thrown under the bus for something and then you suddenly see their reaction being like uh you know struggling of something it is a very funny show it is a very dark show you know like it's at, at times such a tragic show right and i think mm. part of the genius of this program is that they pu they pull off that tonal balance don't they throughout so well absolutely like it's you know the more we watch it it's it's a comedy show about deeply tragic characters. Yeah. I was born lucky. I'm a lucky person. I realize that. And you're so fucking jealous, aren't you? You're so fucking jealous of what you've given your own kids. You can't handle it. You can't, you, you, you can't work it out. If I'd spoken to my uncle like that. What? Hmm? What would evil Uncle Noah do? Calling your daughter a coward till she cries? Big man. Logan, 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 So this week we're going to talk predominantly about season one, right? We're going to start yes. at the beginning. We're going to do season one this week and then we're going to go through it season by season until we are ready to, to start this journey through season four, which as we've recently discovered, Anna, is going to be the last season, right? So season four oh, is... Oh yes, I had a... Yeah. 
I had a whole mental breakdown <laughs> when I sent you that New Yorker interview. So Jesse Armstrong, the creator of Succession, did an interview with the New Yorker very recently. I think only last week. Yeah. Uh, at the time of this recording, where he revealed that season four was going to be the last ever season of Succession. Wow. And I feel personally attacked by this. I do not <laughs> wish for this to happen. I was given the impression that it was going to be five seasons. Yeah, me too. And I would like a, I would like another fucking season of Succession. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm really interested to know why that has happened because I'm sure initially that the plan was five seasons. I'm sure that was said at some point in the past, wasn't it? And is yeah. that practical reasons? Is that storytelling reasons? Like, is that cast or logistical reasons? Like, I really don't know, but I I, I really hope it comes to a somehow satisfying conclusion, even if that in itself that's, that conclusion is unsatisfying in the story. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think it'll probably be creative reasons, mm. as in Armstrong and his team of writers kind of decided that this is where the story has led them to. Yeah. And it is the right time to end because, you know, when you have a juggernaut hit like Succession, you you really do have carte blanche to do whatever you want. Like if he wanted to do a Joey style spinoff of Roman Roy's adventures and babysitting or whatnot, he could have done that. He would have had a blank check from HBO. But I think, you know, one of the things that defines him as a... Um, as a creative, as a storyteller, is kind of knowing when it's the right time to end. Yeah. Um. Those shows, the shows that he's worked on, have, uh, have a storyline, and at one point it is natural to end it. It doesn't need to become a sort of you know ten season, uh, episodic thing. I don't think that's the nature of Succession. So I'm sure, you know, or I'm hopeful that it will end in the way that is most satisfying to the story itself. Yeah. Exactly. So at the point we're recording this, we've seen obviously seasons one to three, and we haven't yet seen any of season four at this point in time, right? And I'm sure as this podcast goes, we'll be making predictions and we'll be speculating, but we know we know nothing. We know as much as everyone else, right, about season four mm -hmm. at this point in time. Um, but we'll be going through it week by week when season four kicks off, which is very exciting. Very exciting. I'm very trepidatious about it because it will be increasingly um, unhinged podcasting. Uh, just a word of Warning in this as we recap the the first three seasons. So we'll do as Mike said, kind of one episode talking about the season as a whole, just to catch ourselves up as well as catching up the listeners. Yeah. Uh, in case you are not inclined to, as we are, to spend another twelve <laughs> what thirty. 12 hours per season, yeah. uh, watching it, watching all the re reading all the recaps again, watching all the myriad of video essays yeah. and takedowns and interviews and profiles that have come out over succession. Uh, I'm very happy to do that all over again. I've watched each <laughs> season like three times now. So we've done that for you. Absolutely. And as a word of warning, we will be spoiling everything up until the end of season three. So we now have the knowledge as we rewatch the first two seasons of what happens in the latest one. So we might bring in elements that happen way down the line. Yes, we might bring them up, but we'll, but we'll try and keep this predominantly to season one for this week, yes. right? Um, so where do we start, Anna? How do we even begin recapping a whole season of television as rich as this? Like, what, what would we say? And we'll, we'll go through this maybe character by character, right? I think that's probably mm -hmm. the best way. But in a nutshell... What is generally the focus of season one, would you say? So 
It's a much, much clearer one. This is where the mess begins. Mm. The focus of season one is the imminent retirement of Logan Roy, who is the founder and CEO and chairman of uh, Waystar Royco, which is a media conglomerate. Mm -hmm. And the tension is, who is he going to name as his successor as the next CEO? And all fingers are pointing at his second eldest son, Kendall Roy. He's on the cover of of business magazines. He's the heir apparent. He's got an MBA. He's a business bro. He's also had some addiction issues, but he's the one who is poised to take over the business. That's where we begin. And everything starts getting messy when all of a sudden Logan Roy on his birthday decides that he is not retiring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then shit hits the fan, basically, doesn't it? Because we have mm-hmm. everyone kind of assumed Kendall was going to take over and then their whole world kind of collapses at this point, particularly for Kendall, but it also means for the other kids, oh, maybe things can change here. Maybe we've got a shot of making this work, right? Exactly. So we're introduced to the very messy, complicated family dynamics of the Roys. Mm-hmm. Shall we go over the the kids? Because they're they're going to be our primary yeah. uh, protagonists. So Logan Roy has four children. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's the first pancake, there's Connor Roy, who's played by Alan Ruck, who isn't a part of the family business and, you know, is was Logan's first child with his first wife. Mm-hmm. Then from the his second wife, Lady Caroline, who we might talk about a little bit later, who is British, he has Kendall, played by Jeremy Strong. He's got Roman Roy, played by Kieran Culkin, who's sort of the bon vivant, kind of troublemaker, party boy of the bunch. And there's Siobhan, um, aka Chevroy, played by Sarah Snook, who is an outsider to the family business. She's a political strategist. Mm-hmm. And supposedly, supposedly, the smartest of the Roy kids by her own pretension. Yes. However, we're yet to see much evidence to demonstrate that. Yeah. Um, and she is Logan's only daughter. And she's also engaged to Tom Wamskans, played by Matthew McFadden, who <laughs> is sort of an outsider to the family. He's a good boy, uh, but, slash, you know, probably sadistic bully, but he's sort of nouveau-rich as mm-hmm. opposed to um, legacy-rich like the other Roy kids. And because this is essentially a corporate King Lear, we we are presented essentially with these three, we're not counting Roman uh, Connor here, with these three options for succession. Is it going to be Ken? Is it going to be Roman? Is it going to be Shiv? Exactly that. Uh, why don't we start by talking about Kendall, shall we? Because it, it, it kind of feels like particularly, boy. your boy, particularly with season one, he really is the centre of this, isn't he? Like, and, and, and the story is set up to make us believe that he is the centre of this, you know, that he is the heir mm-hmm. apparent, as you called him. He's, you know, he's the one that's kind of firmly ingrained in this business. Only him and Roman, when the show starts, are actually kind of part of this business. And Kendall's the oldest son of the two. He's got more experience. He seems to have his head screwed on slightly more than Roman does, at least. And everything falls apart for him in episode one when we see that he makes a choice, doesn't he? He makes a choice. (laughs) It's so cruel. This is where the cruelty really begins with this show because he makes a choice to attend his aging father's birthday party rather than be at an important, you know, work meeting. And straight away... 
he has made a mistake in his father's eyes, right? Logan, Logan, as his dad, would rather his own son have missed his birthday party and gone to this important work meeting, but he didn't. He loves his dad. He he dropped out of his work meeting to go see his dad for his birthday, and that is what tips the decision, right? Listen, I completely agree with Logan. Yeah. Oh my god. Like you Jesus scare Christ. you scare me, Anna. You scare me. <laughs> no, but I one of the things that I've enjoyed the most rewatching the first season, knowing that we were gonna be talking about it in depth, is how everything is laid out so precisely from the very first episode. Yeah. Ken is a flop. Yeah. He's a flop of a man. His priorities in the world that we are inhabiting, that Logan Roy lives in he's not the right fit mm-hmm. he is not a killer he literally chooses to go to his dad's birthday party instead of uh, acquiring vulture you know this um this kind of new media company that they that he desperately wants to acquire because he wants to be cool um yeah like that is a stupid choice if you know your audience i'm not saying that it's like a, a bad human choice but if your dad is logan roy and he is about to make you ceo of his company that is not what Logan Roy cares about. Yes. He does not care about presents. He does not care about his own birthday. He doesn't care about his children's birthdays. He cares about the business and the money. Mm-hmm. And Ken makes two bad cho- three bad choices, actually, that are literally tests that are put to him by his dad. One is going to his birthday party instead of attending the meeting. Mm-hmm. Two is actually flopping around with the acquisition of Volter. Mm-hmm. And three is signing a paper in in front of Logan without reading it. Yeah. He signed a, like a, a will amendment that gave Marsha more powers. Marsha is Logan's um, third wife. And like didn't even read it because he intrinsically trusted his dad. And you could see in Brian Cox's eyes being like, you are a fucking idiot. What are you doing? I would never do this. How can I possibly give you my company? buffoon this is the heartbreaking tragedy about kendall because and all of the kids in a way because they love their dad and they hang on his every word they worship him right and he doesn't want them to worship him he wants them to be more cutthroat but then what Mm -hmm. happens is kendall goes through this kind of clunky calamity journey throughout season one where he he goes right in that case i am going to be more cutthroat i am going to take my dad down and he goes through these plans that just keep failing one by one like you know midway through the season he kind of he tries to stage a uh, a kind of vote of no confidence he assembles the board and this is where i fell in love with the show you know that midway through season one climax moment when he assembles the board And he has this plan to take down his dad with a vote of no confidence. He completely messes up the plan. He's running late. He's stuck in traffic. He doesn't make it to his own board meeting. Everyone turns on him. And then, of course, at the end, he plans this bear hug, this hostile takeover on his dad, which, of course, also goes very badly. All of his attempts at thwarting his dad fail. And you know what? He fails for the same exact reason why he fails in those very first scenes. Yeah. In the first episode, he fails uh, with the vote of no confidence, even though he had the votes because he's not in the room. Because why? He thought the human thing to do would be to personally visit one of the board members. Yeah. Dumb. Yeah. Dumb. He did not need to do that. The other, he fails at the bear hack, you know, and we'll get into the finale is because he crumbles mm-hmm. with guilt in front of his father. So the tragedy of Kendall is that he keeps trying to make himself into someone he's not. Yeah, he's too human. He's actually too... He's, dare I say it, the most decent human being of the of the kids, right? In the, oh, good God, no. no. <laughs> I don't know, no. I, I don't know. Like, I, 
I didn't think that on first watch, but rewatching it again, uh-huh. particularly season one, because we'll get to Shiv, but Shiv is actually maybe the most psychotic out of all of them. <laughs> but like, oh, Shiv's a massive, massive psycho. And 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 Roman kind of you go, I kind of go back and forth on. But I think, like you say, Kendall's ultimate weakness, particularly in season one, is that he's he cares too much. He he does care too much about other people. He cares a lot about himself as well. And he he's so interested in being the cool kid. You know, he wants to get, yes. he wants to be down with the new tech companies. He's obsessed with his image. He does these awful cringy things throughout the show, like, you know, rap and all these kind of awful things where you, you just want to crawl inside yourself and cringe yourself to death. But ultimately, I think he's sort of in his heart a better person than... Logan wants him to be you know and I think that's and that's his ultimate downfall which is really interesting I sort of disagree uh, and it's interesting to hear like it would be interesting to talk about who do we think from the Roy kids are maybe actually good mm. or good-ish good yeah adjacent, I mean it's I mean it's people. all relative of course but yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I, I find Roman on rewatch I found him to be kind of the most earnestly possibly good person even though he is a bastard there are moments when like when um kendall relapses and goes off on a bender with some new mexico meth heads uh roman calls him and literally just drops everything goes to pick him up Mm -hmm. like there is not a doubt in his mind he just goes to pick him up doesn't care about the feud doesn't care about the lawsuit he's like no i'm just gonna do this Mm. this is what i need to do and there's a few moments like that where he he really steps up Mm -hmm. for for his siblings and there's i mean he's so emotionally crippled though that there is simply no possibility of him expressing that in a healthy way Mm. but when push comes to shove he does react well well there's a thing that kendall not only is a flop as a business leader, he isn't. He's a middle manager that has accidentally been born into, you know, the family of the CEO and is now in this elevated position that he has not earned. He'd be a great middle manager, but he wants to be the top dog and he just isn't. Yeah. He just is not that person because he miscalculates everything and he would work well within a team. But his own ego gets in his way, which is a thing that Roman is is a lot more insecure, but a lot more self-aware as well, more than Shiv even, because he knows that he's sort of dumb in many ways. Mm-hmm. Even he calls himself that, but he knows that he has a good nose for things and he's very likable. People like him. People like being around him. Whereas Ken is so try-hard yeah. that everyone bristles against him. I especially love, and I think he has been one of my very few criticisms of the show, is that the CEO Walter, played by Rob Yang, is so underused throughout the rest of the seasons. Yes. He's like great in this first one, but he absolutely fucking hates Ken. Like he literally sells his company so he can have a seat at the board so he can mess with his plans. Like that level of disgust is something else. And yet he'll happily hang out with Roman. Yeah, well, this is true. And Roman has the... but, But this is the thing. I think that Roman has the more cutthroat sort of mindset, doesn't he? He does feel like, apart from age and experience... He does have more in common with Logan, their dad, than Kendall does. Like, and I don't know. Yeah, you're right. I think Roman does show those few moments of humanity when he'll go and help his brother or he'll stick up for his, or he'll genuinely be the one that's worried about his dad dying, you know, like more than the other Mm. kids. Mm. But but then also he, I mean, Roman is like, 
He's the person. Let's yeah, let's talk about Ro. About Ro. He's the person <laughs> who I would least like to be stuck in a room with. I've got to say, out of all these people, because he is. Oh, uh, I think I could be friends oh with Roman. Oh my god! <laughs> I just feel like he was that. Like he's the he's the bullied kid that has become a bully himself. Is 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 kind of how I feel about him. And he's got all kinds of issues, right? And he's absolutely one of the funniest characters, and he's one of the highlights of the show. But my god, I just think mm. I would never, ever, ever want to be stuck in a room with this guy. <laughs> Do you know what? Out of all, oh my god, I think this is way too revealing about my personality. But out of all of the Roy kids, I'd rather be stuck in a room with <laughs> Roman because he would be fun. Yeah. He would be fun. And you know what? The thing is, I actually think I agree with you, but more around season three. I think Roman in season three becomes more of the bully, but in season one, he is such a traumatized little baby. Yeah. He is so actively and openly bullied by and dismissed and humiliated by everyone else now we should talk about the the early signs of roman's humiliation kink which is very evident and will become like a key thing in season two but he is all bluster and no follow-through but he accidentally just tells everyone these deep dark personal secrets about himself without actually like he's so desperate for kindness that it makes me really sad and he's so harmless because of that like when he spends the entirety of tom's uh bachelor party running around telling people that he used to be put in a cage by his brothers (laughs) and you know look at him he's such a poor traumatized little man Mm -hmm. and and nobody nobody takes it seriously they were all like you liked it Mm -hmm. like you asked for it it was chocolate cake they're so dismissive of the things that he has made into his own like nest of drama and trauma that's come from this family that is kind of the reason why he's so you know piggybacking on everyone else and not really doing anything for himself and he's so obsessed at the end with making sure the launch in japan goes well and then it doesn't yeah and in the last episode where he silently watches the his one project his one task explode literally explode Mm -hmm. on the other side of the world his little face at that moment it's just, I just, I just want to give Roman a hug, to be honest. See, oh my God, this is so funny. I feel the exact opposite way. Like when, <laughs> when I watch this douchebag watch literally people potentially dying in a video of an explosion and then he just pops his phone back in his pocket and goes back out to his party. I'm like, oh my God, he's a monster. And, and I know what you mean. In some ways he's, there's something less monstrous about him because he's more upfront about the fact that he's a monster. Like, he knows he knows who he is and he knows who his family is and he constantly makes jokes about how they're all mm. dickheads mm. And, and monsters, right? Like, he's you know Shiv and Kendall are constantly trying to kind of convince the world and convince themselves that maybe they're better somehow than the rest of them and Roman's always like oh please you're a fucking monster just like I am and he's just very there's no filter he is the kind of the you know if 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 you've got the others that might appear more as the sort of public face of of who these people want to be he's the truth of who they really are i think these kind of weird um, weird little deviant with all kinds of issues and <laughs> almost no conscience i think to to speak of um but my god he's hilarious and be- but because of that there is something kind of that you warm to with him and i did find that throughout the show especially across the three seasons i do find 
find myself almost starting to root for and feel sorry for Roman, especially when you start to get hints of how he was treated as a child, how Logan essentially has abused him, right? And uh, like, I don't know, like bullied him, I think. And we see glimpses of that throughout. There's a moment when he hits Roman. Mm -hmm. like, And so that humanity kind of does start to come through in Roman a little bit more as it goes on, which is what's so brilliant about this show and the writing, you know? Yeah, and I think kind of those, uh, you know, when he gets hit by Logan, there is a... The show never states it, but it's very much implied that this is not the first or the last time that that has happened. So it always struck no. me as this is why I never feel, uh, you know, I'm never rooting for Roman because it would be a bad idea mm. for him to be actually successful. Like he just understands <laughs> his position in the world. He's just been gifted this amount yes. of money and this name and he can just do whatever he wants, never have any consequences. And that's fine. But he... Like very rarely, sometimes he gets given this like, oh, maybe, maybe you would be good at this. And he kind of knows that he never will be. So he's just happy to flop around. But it, I do always feel very sorry for Roman, especially because the show gives us, the show gives us these insights into the personal kind of out of, out of office lives of the main three kids. And they're all pretty sad, including Shiv, who we'll talk about in a bit, but yeah. Roman's bluster and his whole thing about like, oh, I'm just this like little, you know, oversexed Tasmanian devil. Oh, like it's actually such a such a front. Yes. And he believes that that is like that that is convincing anyone, but it's not. And we see him with, you know, his first girlfriend, Grace, and we see him with um, Tabitha, who he meets kind of later on at Tom's uh, at Tom's bachelor party at this, you know, underground, super cool, mm -hmm. super rich party. And she, <laughs> she, she's one of my favorite kind of secondary characters because at this moment where he literally is like, oh, do you want to marry me? Because like, I don't know what else to do, you know, instead of like, we're not gonna, we're not gonna, we're not gonna have sex, but it's like, okay, just don't talk about it. Do you want to marry me? like let's maybe let's do that and she is so sweet because she's like babes is that how you get people to stay do you just give them more because you can't have a conversation with them about what's happening with you he's and he can't even look at her he's just like framed sort of so and you know kieran culkin is i think a lot of it it comes down to his performance but also the way he uses his body because he's like he's not a very big man but no. every so often in the series, when Roman is most humiliated, he literally retreats into himself like a little tortoise. Like his shoulders go mm. up, his head goes down, he's not looking up, he's trying to hide himself physically as much as possible. It's something I really noticed on this rewatch, that he just reduces himself. And he does that even with Tabitha when she says that. Like, I know we shouldn't really pity these people, but like he is so overtly traumatized that I'm not He is. <laughs> he is. He is. He absolutely is. No, you're you're totally right. Like he is the one they all need a lot of therapy, yeah. but my god, does does Roman need therapy? It's true. And and Kieran Culkin is so good, right? And I think it's funny, you know, he himself, a little brother in a dynasty family a very famous mm -hmm. and successful family right playing this character he does it so so well and like he may now be my favorite Culkin I mean there are a lot of great Culkins <laughs> out there right but Kieran is so so good in this show oh he's, and you're been, right, he's every... been my favorite Culkin since Igby goes down great little indie film oh incredible uh, and you know um 
Jeremy Strong originally wanted to play Roman, didn't he? When he read the when he read the script, and then ended up with the with the part of Kendall instead because they gave it to Kieran Culkin. But I almost couldn't imagine that because, like you say, it's Kieran Culkin's kind of like build and physicality. It's just it just feels perfect for that yeah. particular role. And yeah. even you know we have it. We we've meant we're talking about Kendall, but let's talk a little bit about Jeremy Strong, who is in mm. a way the breakout star. Uh, of yes. this show because he wasn't really he wasn't really a name um, mm-hmm. he wasn't really that well known in any way he's been you know he's been acting for a long time but you know and come season two I'm sure we'll talk about the uh, or season three more like we'll sure talk about the infamous New Yorker profile but he is also he does so many things with his physicality and especially like there's a goofiness to Kendall that I really appreciated. Even his sort of morning routine when he starts with his Tai Chi and, you know, all these sort of, you know, the big girl bossy, um, your routine before your day actually starts that he does in order to be the successful business bro and CEO. Like, it's it's all quite laughable and goofy. Even when he, you know, he hooks up with his ex-wife, Rava, Mm. There's this just over eagerness that Jeremy yes. Strong manages to convey in the way that he moves, the way that he speaks, you know, how he's like face trembles and how he also when he's humiliated by different people, by Logan, by um, the kind of the art girls who have this art startup that he wants to finance that reject him because he's a Roy. Oh God, yeah. Like when he goes into this, then like, oh, no, I'm going to get revenge. Yeah. It's so he's so stoic, but you can see that it's such a front because it's hiding this very, very slight offense. Yeah, that he takes so to heart because he's so raw. Well, no matter what he does, no matter how kind of tough and confident he makes himself look, he has those. And I know everyone talks about this, but he has those sad eyes, doesn't he? Jeremy Strong and Kendall, there is just such sadness in his eyes at all time. And it works so well because he can be both hilarious and your heart goes out to him at the exact same time throughout this show. And he is ridiculous and he makes a fool out of himself over and over again. But my heart kind of goes out to Kendall, you know, in a weird way. And he does some monstrous things, particularly in the season finale of season one. He does some terrible things. But that moment too, when he breaks down and cries at the end of season one, you just like, he he plays it brilliantly. And I think Mm. there's an amazing moment, isn't there, in episode one, which I think Jeremy Strong kind of did off the cuff, where he has that kind of meltdown in the bathroom and he starts destroying things and ripping things up. And And then then he puts them all back. He he cleans cleans up afterwards. And it's just like, it's. and apparently Jeremy Strong just sort of did that off his own back. He improvised (laughs) that. And it's just such a beautiful little moment that, that sums him up really, doesn't it as well? You know, like it's, yeah, fascinating character such a good performance it's just there is so much nuance there and you know it, it's quite interesting i've been re-watching it and thinking about how very early on i think in one of the early interviews jeremy strong or someone about him said that he does he's not acting as though he's in a comedy even though that's right he's first, playing it straight he's playing it completely straight even when he's at his funniest and that i think that's one of the elements that makes it so hilarious especially when kendall tries to be cool mm. and particularly the the meeting you know the when we first meet him he's sort of you know singing uh rapping in the car being driven around and then when he meets the when he's already <laughs> out of waste at Royco and he meets the art the art startup and he's sort of dressed in a cool 
print t-shirt with a blazer and he changes his shoes so he buys these like expensive sneakers <laughs> to seem cool like everything about him is so laughable and especially yep. the way that his wardrobe is used makes him even more comical and yes. that combined with Strong's performance of just like no this is like completely serious which is exactly how someone like Kendall would take it yeah yeah it's it, he's a he's a fascinating character and, and there are he can do so much with so little in just like a look you know like his face there's like a, a thousand things at once i think jeremy strong it's no wonder that he's like the breakout star of this show um should we talk about shiv next Let's talk about Siobhan. oh such complicated feelings about shiv right because particularly while we're talking about season one Shiv was the one I was 100% rooting for through season okay. one. You know, she's the outsider. She's the one who kind of thought of herself as like, I'm a bit better than the rest of them. I'm smarter than the rest of them. I'm a bit more liberal. I've got my head screwed on a bit more. And kind of as this sort of slight outsider working for, as this kind of political strategist for this kind of liberal uh, politician, she kind of seems like, oh, is she the is she the one smart decent voice in this in this like fucked up family but as time goes on she's definitely not that Anna is she <laughs> so I wanted to ask actually because you did you did mention this at the top that you know Shiv is the and in the outlet that Shiv is like the smartest and you know the most relatable one of the mm. of the family and I remember thinking that as well the first time I watched the series and then with mm-hmm. every we watch I was like oh no she's never been good or smart (laughs) so tell me mike how has your vision of shiv changed with this rewatch well i think there's that just roy family cruelty in her from the beginning actually Mm -hmm. isn't there which maybe i just tried to ignore the first time i watched season one because on paper shiv seemed like the coolest one to root for right she was not part of the family business she was working for this cool bernie sanders-esque politician she did seem smarter than everybody else and i think i i wrongly equated smarter with better in terms of her humanity, and that is not the case, you know. And I think you're right. When you rewatch the show again, you see Sheer from the start. She still has that meanness, that coldness. She's only out for herself. She's quite rude to people that uh, it it doesn't benefit her to be nice to. The way she treats Tom throughout season one is pretty horrendous. I'm sure we'll get into that as we go. So yeah, I mean, I think there is. That meanness is there from the beginning in Shiv, but I think because I thought she was smarter and more capable and what she was doing with her life was slightly more admirable, I think on paper, I wanted to like her more than her brothers. Do you know what I mean? What do you have against me? Nothing. Nothing? Oh, you want me to actually say? Yes, I do. You lack killer instinct. You're wet, you're green, you're intellectually insecure, you're not emotionally strong enough, you have addiction issues. That's enough. I agree. I also was thinking that she was the one, that she was the smartest one, that she's the only one who could actually run the company. And upon re- with the subsequent seasons and upon rewatch especially, as with all the other characters, everything is actually laid out in the first season. Yeah. So this was the most surprising thing for me upon rewatch is that Shiv is always an arrogant flop from the very mm. beginning. 
And I use the flop the term flop very specifically because I love a, you know, the, the we get a lot of like male flops, but very rarely get like a female flop mm. in the sense that if someone is this kind of chic and slick and sharp-tongued as and rich and sort of powerful as Chevroy, then by default you assume it's like, oh, she's this like bitchy character. She's smart. She's powerful. She's got so much agency. Yeah. Shiv is a dumbass. Same <laughs> as her brothers. Yeah. And I think the thing that brings her down is her own hubris. It's her own arrogance. She deep down to her core believes herself to be not only smarter than her brothers mm. she believes herself to be just as if not more intelligent and cutthroat than her dad yeah and at the same time uh similarly to ken uh she believes she has convinced herself that she's actually a better person than they all are that she's yeah. got the smarts and the business savvy of logan roy and she's also fundamentally a good liberal person, right? And that is absolutely not true. You can see from the very first, like, second episode where she, the way she talks to the doctors that are trying to save her dad when he has his, um, when he goes to the hospital, the way she talks to staff, the way mm. she talks to Tom, the way she dismisses anyone who she doesn't deem to be at her level. So mm -hmm. she doesn't treat anyone with humanity, if she does not consider them to be useful or of her status. She is not a good person, but she has deluded herself into thinking that she is. And she has also deluded herself into thinking that she has made a name and a career for herself without any help from the Roys. Come on, that is bullshit. <laughs> she has, she carries that name. And there's a scene where, you know, and this is hilarious because I'd completely forgotten about the scandal. Her senator, uh, her candidate for senator, uh, Joyce, her, Joyce's husband, there is a photo leaked of his asshole <laughs> that yes. is shown yes. in graphic detail in the show. And I'm like, oh, I was not expecting to see this over my breakfast rewatch. <laughs> and like she storms into the um the the Waystar kind of news channel. Mm -hmm. And there's this amazing interaction with the news producer because then you can see it's like Shiv. Baby girl, you would have not been able to do this if you were not, if you did not have the same name as the CEO of the company. Like, no political advisor would be able to get away with this amount of shit that you are getting away with because mm -hmm. of who you are by birth. So, again, it's just her delusion of thinking that she is better than everyone else because she's the only one who has a career outside of the family company. But again, and I had forgotten about this interaction between her and Logan when towards the end of the season where they are when he's essentially, again, trying to manipulate her for her his own gain when she has become the uh, campaign manager for Gil Evis. So a mm. staunch anti-Roy politician who will aggressively um, try to go after Logan. Logan sees that as a betrayal akin to the one that Kendall does when he tries yeah. to oust him from the company and he tries to seduce her in order to um, eliminate that threat it's not because he actually believes that Shiv can be the next him or is the smartest one of his kids it's because he's trying to work work her to his own advantage and she, and he does this thing you know where he appeals to her arrogance like oh you were i always thought you were the smartest one and yeah, she's yeah, like yeah, yeah. i am the smartest one but why did you try my two dumbass brothers kendall and, and roman before me 
So again, she's blind to the very clear machinations of her dad because she just wants to be told that she is a smart cookie. Yeah, she just they're all it, so basic. They're all so basic. Yeah, it's so true. All of that's all they want, right? All any of them want is to be told by their daddy, you're the best, you're the favourite, you're the smartest. And none of them ever will get that vindication. So they all just are constantly scrambling over each other. And I think what I liked about Shiv in season one is that she kind of seemed above it initially. But of course, she flips so quickly as soon as Logan offers her or even just dangles the potential of offering her the top job at Waystar Royco, everything starts to change. And I think, you know, what I what I thought on my first watch that was that she was a decent person that was corrupted by Logan. But actually, maybe that corruption was already there from the beginning. Maybe she was a monster from the start. <laughs> I I will I will say there is one thing that I think is kind of speaking to the inherent misogyny of you know well everything yeah. that is very smartly written into the show without being super overt and that is that Shiv is the only one that takes a lot more direct shit from other people yes. including people that are very close to Logan so like Marsha who is not even like she is his third wife she is not Shiv's mother she is not anyone's mother she is Logan's kind of companion in this stage of his life she literally like challenges Shiv several times over throughout the season in a way that she doesn't do with any of the other kids to the point where on the eve of like her wedding Marsha to her face calls her a spoiled slut yeah which is just this moment of sheer audacity like she would not she has not said that or you know what even nothing even close to any of the other Roy kids yeah and I think there's kind of there is an element of kind of hatefulness that is reserved for Siobhan because she is the only daughter that we don't really see for any of the other kids and that only gets kind of more and more explored as the season goes on yeah you're absolutely right I mean god the there's a moment in season three when she has to make a speech to the company oh and, god and there are and this is again what's genius about this show because you end up feeling really sorry for Shiv at certain points in the show for, for for this reason right um but I think it's so interesting like you said that she thinks she's worked hard and that she's different to the rest of her siblings when she is born into so much privilege and that that is maybe the ultimate downfall of all three of these kids and it's the reason mm. that I feel like Logan does not respect them and will never respect them that Logan came from nothing and built mm-hmm. himself an empire and of course he raised his kids in this incredibly privileged environment but he almost resents his own children for having had yeah. an easy life right like he yeah. he he can't get his head around passing his empire on to somebody that hasn't worked for it um which Absolutely. is really interesting you know like he think- he feels angry towards them for being lazy privileged arrogant dickheads basically you know even though he raised them like that you know i think it's absolutely the crux of the show and i think kendall confronts him about this in the first season where he says isn't it sad that you you have given your kids you've given us so many things and you hate us for it like yeah you you are jealous of the things that you've given your kids he tells him Mm -hmm. and it is this, it's really devastating because like they will simply never, li- they are incapable of living up to his expectations because they have started from a different starting point. Yeah. And this, you know, we'll see that later on in the, in the seasons, the people that Kendall, that 
the, the people that Logan actually responds to with respect are usually people who have come from a lesser position and have elevated themselves. So people like the the tech CEO uh, played by Alexander Skarsgård in yeah. the third season, even Tom to a degree, when Greg, out of all people, and I think this is also kind of applies to Greg in a way. Yeah. Because Greg comes from, he's kind of a distant relative of the Roy's, but he's a nothing person. And when he sort of weasels his way into these into these kind of closed rooms, there is a tacit, teeny tiny smidge of respect, I think, or at least respect in the sense that he's allowing him to be there because he has weaseled his way in. And that takes a little bit of skill. Yeah. And, you know... He does have this sort of when Greg is complaining to him about how bullish and aggressive Tom is towards him. There is this cheeky smile on Logan's face. You know, he's like, oh, I did not know that Tom had it in him. Yeah. And there's an element of respect. There was like, oh, who, who are you, Wamsgangs? Like, what are you capable of doing? Yeah. Because you're actually hungry as opposed to just entitled. Well, this is and this is the really interesting balance that you have to get right with Logan right and it's interesting to watch it as a spectator to kind of see who ends up in the good books and who ends up at the bad books at different points because Logan wants you to stand up for yourself and be driven and be cutthroat but if you're too much that way like Kendall is in season one when he tries to take down his own father then you'll be destroyed for that right the best way you can be is a bit like Jerry or maybe a bit like Tom who we'll talk about in a sec which is like keep your head down stay savvy be ruthless when you need to be ruthless but always be respectful and be loyal to logan you know and uh there are certain people that get that right aren't there mm. maybe we should should we talk about tom let's talk about tom the amazing tom wob scams played by matthew mcfadden who is you know kind of the outsider right because he grew he had a kind of humble beginning a bit like logan did mm-hmm. in a way except that he married his way into the roy family into power he shivs husband um and he goes through quite a journey quite an up and down journey throughout the three seasons what do you make of tom Wamscams? tom is a little sneaky sneaky snake isn't he just i love Wamscans. he is <laughs> he is a buffoon mm-hmm. but he understands the world of the rich and you know there's there's this great sort of uh, i think he's sort of comic relief in disguise so there's a scene that he shares with Greg who he's teaching him to be he's teaching Greg how to be rich. Mm-hmm. You know, and he says and it's hilarious. So he's like, you know the best you know the best thing about rich? Being rich, it's fucking everything. Like you can do it's like having a superpower, but better. Yes. <laughs> and Tom is so aware of the privileges of being wealthy. Yes. He has no interest in actually doing the work. He has no interest in being CEO or being head of anything. But he does make those maneuvers because he knows that it will bring him more money. It will bring him more status. It will mean that he will have to do less work. Like he, It means that he can have more people to punch down on. Yeah. And this is the really interesting thing about Tom, right? Tom is also a bastard. Like he's jovial and he's funny and he's sort of such a simp for Siobhan. And that's kind of really hilarious. Like to the point where he literally has like a, he comes into work with a black eye and <laughs> but he latches on to Greg because Tom, possibly just the same as Logan, is a bully. Mm-hmm. He will never punch up because he knows exactly where he stands in the power dynamics, in the hierarchy. Mm. But Tom 
needs someone to punch down upon. He latches onto Greg because he knows Greg is less important than him. Yep. But still around enough that he can always blame him. He can use him as a scapegoat. He can literally or figuratively punch down and he can make fun of him. Even when he's trying to do him a favor, even when he's sort of training him to be a sneaky snake, he still can punch down on him. And he thoroughly enjoys that. Like that is the core of his personality, I think. Yeah, Tom is such a snake isn't he and i really really didn't like him when i first watched season one because of because of how he treats greg in that first season and just like there's just something i mean matthew mcfadden plays him so unbelievably well i think this this mix of being again we've sort of said this about all of them really but this mix of being quite pathetic like he is he is, uh, you know, he he kind of hangs on Logan's every word and every action. He kind of really lets himself be sort of walked all over by Shiv. But yet when there's somebody with a lower status than him, he will be nasty, bully, you know, like, and, and he knows exactly what he needs to say and what he needs to do to suck up as well. But there is something fascinating about Tom as well, uh, where, you know, there are moments of real sadness with Tom there are moments of him really really trying and you kind of almost feel for him you know because you just feel like he's never gonna be at least in season one you think this you think he's never gonna be the top guy he's never gonna he's mm-hmm. never gonna compete with the Roy siblings for power in any way but he kind of constantly is trying to say the right thing and do the right thing even in episode one where he's struggling to figure out what to get his potential father-in-law for a birthday gift, right? And it's like, what do you get the richest man in the world as a birthday yeah. gift, right? It is impossible. And like, you kind of, those little moments as, uh, you know, of Tom as the outsider, I mm. think are really fascinating. And and he is, and you know, the moments like where he will just, he hooks up with a woman on his stag do, he has to swallow his own cum, and then he kind of boasts about it. But like, it's like, should I be boasting about it? He kind of thinks of himself as this cool guy that's maybe in this open relationship, but actually doesn't want to be in an open relationship because he actually loves his wife. And like, there is, again, there's just this inherent sadness in him, isn't there? I think as much as he yeah, likes to pretend and, like he's a he's a superhero. You know? And he is, you know, you mentioned that he never wants to be the top guy. And I agree. He wants to be the guy next to the top guy who will never get blamed for everything, who is never at such a risk, but will get all of the spoilers yes in the same way as sort of jerry who you know we might talk a little bit uh further on in the episode like she is general counsel for waste Roco, and she is in the mix of everything but she's never going to be fully held responsible for anything which yeah. is the sweet spot absolutely in the corporate world yeah and you know the relationship between tom and shiv is really fascinating because he's i think he's earnestly kind of in love with her mm. and absolutely obsessed with her but she not only is she cheating on him with Nate, but she is also so everything about their relationship is formulated to suit her, even down to the vagueness of their so-called open relationship. She is just vague enough about it to allow herself room to cheat on him, but she doesn't really care what he does, even though he's so you know, it's like, well, if we're going to do this, like, should, like, can we talk about specific? And she's like, I literally do not care. I do yeah. not care. I do not have time for negotiate right now, Tom. <laughs> yeah. And he's so excited about like this one thing, this one encounter that he has with Tabitha. And 
like all unbeknownst to him, Shiv is fully having an affair with uh, with a man from her past. Yeah, and she not only does not ask him for permission, she does not inform him about this until she tearfully kind of uh, comes clean. On the day of the wedding. On the wedding night. Well, she basically proposes an open relationship to him on their wedding night, right? It's... And also this man, Nate, is at their wedding as well. Mm-hmm. Literally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, it's actually a great moment. Again, it's kind of goes to show how smart this show is because by this point I was kind of rooting for Tom and when he goes and tells Nate to fuck off, you know, at the wedding, I kind of loved that moment, you know? But again, it's just and... like, what a sad, sad little man Tom is. And also much like the rest of the Roy kids, Tom is also completely lacking in self-awareness. Mm. So he, even when, you know, Greg in all his earnestness yeah. tries, goes and tells him, you know, on the eve of their wedding that he has seen Shiv with Nate, that he thinks Shiv is cheating on him. <laughs> Greg literally punches... Uh, Tom literally punches Greg to the ground <laughs> because he is unable and unwilling to accept any bad word about Siobhan, to accept anything that would create a crack in his ver- in his vision and in his internal mm-hmm. uh, ideation of what their relationship looks like. Yeah, and it is that that kind of is quite sad because he is simply unable to be direct and actually look at their relationship and at their lives with open eyes because in a way tom is also he is enamored with the idea of power by association like he knows he's not born into the roy family but he can marry into it so he's willing to take so much more shit because of what shiv represents for him well it's interesting isn't it because like Yes, you you might think on the one hand that he's manoeuvred himself cleverly to marry Shiv so he can be part of this family and this empire. But then also I think he really, really does actually love Shiv, doesn't he? There is also this other bit of him who's like, I don't care, I don't care, I'll sign the prenup, whatever. Because he just wants to be with Shiv and make her happy as well at the same time, you know? And he's so sad at at this prospect of her sleeping with other people or having an open relationship. He doesn't want to kind of... He doesn't want to kind of fight that, but you mm. can tell that's not what he wants, right? And actually he does, it does feel like as well as being this kind of quite hungry for power guy, he is also, he genuinely has this kind of unconditional love for Shiv at the same time, you know? He does, yeah, because two things can be true at once and he can be deeply in love with her and also sort of using her for, uh, as an entry point into more power. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and I think again it changes as it goes on through season two yeah. and season three. The more the more she treats him like shit, the more he realizes actually maybe maybe I could start making opportunities work for myself here, and uh, and you know that's where it heads to really interesting places. I think in season three, but uh, but yeah, Tom is a brilliant character, and you know we cannot talk about Tom without talking about Greg. Of course, of course, cousin Greg, <laughs> the, the second breakout star of Succession. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And and really very much the comic relief, right? And I suppose these two as a double act became so mm. like they became so beloved by fans as this kind of hilarious dub, this kind of like Bert and Ernie of the succession world, yes, basically. Absolutely. Right? <laughs> and also because like just their their physicality as well comes into play because Nicholas Brown, who plays Greg, is like six foot five and really lanky. And Matthew McFadden is also a very tall man. I think he's like six yeah. foot three or four. But like, you know, just very much or 
six two or something, but he's like constantly looking up while also punching <laughs> and also, down. They're and always breath. actually they're always like physically fighting <laughs> physically too. Like there are there are multiple <laughs> scenes, like you say, where he'll punch Greg to the floor or they'll like wrestle yeah. around an office and stuff. <laughs> and these amazing, beautiful moments, like where they're they're almost like the most sweet couple of the whole show, aren't they? Oh, you it's know? so like, homoerotic as well. Yeah. Like they're so like Tom, do you just want to kiss Greg? Is that what yeah. this is all about? <laughs> it's like a when, playground. It's there's a brilliant line, is it in season two maybe or three where he talks about how he would love to ca- castrate Greg and make him his wife. Oh, that's season three, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. So good. Yeah, they're, oh, they're beautiful, aren't they? And, and, and Greg is brilliant and he very much is the kind of like lowly, funny, cu- estranged cousin who has nothing to do with his family, who doesn't have any power whatsoever, who's kind of an opportunist and kind of weasels his way into the family in episode one to get himself a good job. And then obviously, as is the way with the Roys, he slowly sort of becomes corrupted by everything that's going on. He has to shred important papers and then he's going to keep some of them for leverage. And how is he going to work this to his advantage? And, you know, he slowly starts becoming part of this kind of this horror show of the Roys, doesn't he? Well, this is one thing that has changed in my mind upon this rewatch, right? So that Greg is the comic relief. Right, he is tall, lanky, pretty dim, um, kind of un- vaguely related to the Roys. But from the very first moment he's introduced, he is just as entitled oh, and yeah. just as sneaky. Because he loses his job at the theme park, which his mum gets him. Yes, because <laughs> he like he gets high on the job and he throws up in his like big costume. <laughs> so gross. And then he just like appears at Logan's house like a fucking weirdo with some random present and everything. You know, even when he um he's trying to weasel her his way into the Roy's. And and when he starts kind of this like ongoing weird relationship with Tom, when he's given the task, which is essentially he's given the task of uh, shredding the cruise documents, which is a plot point that will become very important in season two. And it's just already been um, fed for us in season one, but we don't exactly know what it is yet. He is tasked with shredding these documents because then if push comes to shove, he can be the fall guy for that. Mm. And even though he doesn't understand what's happening, he understands that he's being set up. Mm-hmm. So he's, without even having necessarily an allegiance with anyone else, he just sneaks away these documents in the big shredder room. Yeah, You know, it's like, oh, it's one for me, one for them, one to the shredder, one for me. Yeah, And... Like, it's kind of like a, a almost a savant level of corruption yeah. where I don't think it's the Roy's influence. I think it's entirely his own self-entitlement and self-preservation where he just wants to get as much as possible while he's there and sort of avoid being like... N- avoid being held responsible for anything that might happen he doesn't really give a shit about anyone not even tom yeah he's just trying to protect himself um and he is kind of goofy and the goofiness camouflages him mm-hmm. as the weasel that he is and it kind of appears to make him more likable but he isn't really he's this is why i think like he fits in with the roys mm. so neatly because he is just as self-centered and uh, just as um, uh, corrupted as all of them. And he is, you know, 
just acting out of self-interest at all times. Yeah. Like, you, I would never trust Greg. Absolutely not. No, no. Not with a post-it note. No, 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 totally. Because he is both a bit calamity, but uh, calamitous, but also, you, you're right, he's got that... He's got that drive and he's got that urge to serve himself at all times as well. Um, and yeah, you're right. You see that from the very beginning on Rewatch. He's always a bit like, okay, but what? how is this going to help me? And he sort of says lines like that so often, doesn't he? He's like, well, I'm I, well, I'm worried. I'm, wor- I'm wondering how I'm going to benefit from this, you know? And, well, yeah. even in the hospital, do you remember the scene in the hospital where Roman asks him to get something yes. and then Shiv asks him to not get it? Yeah. And there's this little wink that she gives him at the end and he's like, oh yeah, I think I think I aligned myself with the Roy sibling with the most power today. Yeah, exactly. He's an opportunist, isn't he? Basically, like he is just this kind of clueless, stoner bro who Mm. finds himself surrounded by billionaires and starts to realise how could I make this work to my advantage (laughs) and should we talk about the first pancake? <laughs> Wait, what's the first pancake? Well, you know, you know how the first, when you make, whenever you make pancakes, yeah. the first pancake is always the dodgy one, oh, yeah. the one that comes out wrong or undercooked. So that's Connor Roy. Oh, <laughs> like he's yeah. the first kid, and he's just bless him. He's just not great, is he? <laughs> It almost feels like he's a kind of like mad inbred rich person. Do you know what I mean? Like one of these like cartoon character rich people who has absolutely no awareness of the real world. He doesn't really understand anything. He's in his own little weird bubble, isn't he? Um, And again, in season one, he doesn't have... He he does a little bit more in season two, I think, doesn't he? With his like drive to Mm -hmm. become president. But in season one, he just pops in and out. For comic for comic relief, basically. His his main thing in season one is, you know, and it's used a lot for comic relief, is the fact that he has this relationship with an escort called Willa, who is fantastic as a as a kind of as a secondary character. She's great. And but he is so deluded that he believes that to be uh, like a re- like a real relationship, not a transactional one. So kind of the only points of tension between Connor and his family is when he wants Willa to be included in the family photos, and the entire family is so dismissive and kind of you know insulting of them. And to be fair, they do have kind of a point where it's like Connor. Connor, sweetie, <laughs> that is a that is a woman who is performing a job that you are paying her for. That is not your girlfriend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you do not pay your girlfriend to be with you. Oh my god, it's it, that is called the girlfriend experience. He, Watch the movie, Connor. He's hilarious, isn't he? But actually, the partners are all really interesting people in this, aren't they? You know, like Willa, mm-hmm. Rava, um, Tabitha. They, they, they get their scenes are kind of few and far between, but they do feel like the, the sort of like the voices of reason a, a lot of the time. You know, these like these women who who know how ridiculous all of these Roy siblings are basically right and 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 Marsha kind of is an interesting element of that as well isn't she really all of these various different partners um particularly the women partners in this family mm. who all kind of know how ridiculous these men are but also know what's in it for them if they stick by them kind of thing as well yeah really i mean rava will and tabitha are kind of the perfect examples of that because mm. they you know willa is you know obviously there's a much more clear exchange you yes know, she is doing it for money yeah um and rava who's the ex-wife of of kendall and mother of his two children like it i think there is a real tenderness towards ken i mean clearly they did have a very real relationship that uh, ended because of his addiction issues 
and and Tabitha feels like more of a it feels like she has genuine affection for Roman but she's also so clear as to what's happening there you know that is it's they are in a relationship but it's not a relationship um that fits the parameters that she would expect but she's sort of she's very non-judgmental which I like it feels like she's a good friend for Roman and like someone who he will genuinely have fun hanging out with and she has fun hanging out with him but this is not the this is not a fulfilling relationship for her yeah 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 and the other kind of sideline, uh, kind of tertiary characters I want to talk about are the practical women of Waste I Wrote Co. So that's Jerry, who I've mentioned before, the general counsel, Carolina, the head of PR, and Jess, Kendall's assistant. Yes. Like these in the background, sort of not long suffering, but sort of uh, competent employees yeah. who have to just work around the nonsense shit <laughs> of their employers. Yeah. All the time. And there's a few like cutaway shots to their faces when they're just kind of, you know, not being looked at, but reacting to the nonsense that's going on around them that are just mm, precious. 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 Yeah, they're so great, aren't they? Jerry, what a character Jerry is. And I'm sure we'll talk about Jerry maybe more in season two and her relationship oh, yeah. with Roman. But like, she is brilliant. <laughs> Again, you kind of, they they plant the seeds in season one of like, oh, this woman is super competent. She knows what's what. Mm -hmm. She knows who to work and when. She knows, like you said, when to keep her head down, keep out of the spotlight. But she also knows when to kind of step in and, and do what she needs to do. And you're right. Like, I think... It's this idea that it's it's a lot of women in this world that are completely mm. kind of underestimated, I think, probably is the best way to describe it, right? Because these men are all so wrapped up in their own worlds and their own egos, you know? And uh, But also it yeah. means that they can just get on with shit, get paid and get out. Yeah, yeah. Like, Jerry at no point wants to be considered for the CEO position, even no. though she's so high up, because she's like, why would I want that for myself? <laughs> yeah. That is so much more trouble than it's worth. Absolutely not. Exactly. Well, maybe we should finish by discussing the king of the kingdom, Logan Roy, then, right? Yes. Who, even though, you know, really this story is about our kids... Every single character in this in this show gravitates around Logan Roy, right? He is the center of this universe. Everyone wants his approval. Everyone wants to make him happy. Or everyone wants to be the next Logan Roy. Mm-hmm. Um, and throughout season one, he goes through a kind of interesting arc, doesn't he? Because he starts off the first time we see him, opening scene of the first episode. He's very unwell. He stumbles out of bed in the night. He urinates on the floor. He doesn't quite know what's happening. You get the feeling that this man is aging. He's not in good health. He has a stroke. He's in hospital for a lot Mm -hmm. of the first half of season one. But then that cutthroat sort of side to Logan Roy begins to emerge from around midway through season one onwards. What do you think of Logan? So he's quite fascinating, isn't he? Because, I mean, the parallels to King Lear are very obvious. It's a corporate King Lear. Yeah. And Brian Cox has played King Lear, I think I read somewhere like over 150 times, which seems <gasps> insane. Oh my God. Yeah, I know. I, 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 was like, I was like, I need to double check that. But <laughs> I, I found it really interesting to read in that interview with Jesse Armstrong that we referenced earlier in the episode that he talks about Logan as 
being a very loving father. Mm-hmm. So in his head, much like his children are very uh, lacking any self-awareness, Logan also lacks any self-awareness, mm. namely because he refuses to die. And I mean this figuratively. You know, he refuses to leave his post, even though it would be the best thing for the company. Mm. Um, even though he's, you know, incapacitated in some ways. And he refuses to admit that he is not a good dad. Yes. That he that he's partly responsible for the way that his like children have turned out. And, you know, the narrative that he has in his own head very clearly is that he is the best at everything. He's the best at business. He's the best at fatherhood. Mm-hmm. And he is unwilling to accept anything that he's done wrong. Yep. And in this interview with Jesse Armstrong, he mentions that like if you had asked Logan, I was like, oh, do you think do you think you're a good dad? He would be defensive automatically defensive about the fact that he's been nothing but a loving father that everything he's done has been for his children yes and this is the crux of what makes logan so interesting to watch because he's not just a bully he's not just a um you know a power hungry uh media mogul there is just he's so emotionally crippled yeah He's so unable to understand human emotions and rejects them so outright yeah. that it makes him blind as well to certain things. And there's little hints throughout the season of kind of um, of past history, you know, his animosity towards his brother Ewan, um, you know, his references to his uncle, uh, to his uncle Noah, mm. and that he was beaten or you know abused in some way, mm-hmm. you know, the way that he made his fortune in his name, there is this aggression that is in permanent status. He cannot operate outside of that. Like even if he wanted to. He's simply incapable. And I think he is incapable of seeing kind of, even when they're telling him outright what they need from him, he's incapable of communicating straight with his children. He only exists in a world, he can only engage with other people via manipulation. Yeah, Everything is a power game. And that is how he views the world. And it is so completely um, boxed in in that view of the world that actually it makes him quite a sad character very watchable and obviously like when he turns on the logan word charisma Mm. it's kind of incredible and i think that's very much brian cox's work you know where he can be yelling at someone and telling them to fuck off five times in a minute and then in another second he turns over to someone else and turns on the charm and he's very charismatic and very watchable and it's that not knowing what's going to happen from one scene to another that makes him so engaging to watch, I think. Yeah, I think that's what it is. He's he's enigmatic and we don't know what's going on in Logan Roy's head a lot of the time. Like, I think the program mm-hmm. really lets, in, lets us in on Kendall and the siblings as our kind of main characters, quote unquote, I suppose. We know what they're planning. We know what they're talking about, what they're scheming. Whereas with Logan, I think particularly in season one, we don't know what he's thinking, you know, he, so he's constantly kind of taking us by surprise in his actions. And I think there is a, there's a, it's an ambiguity in season one. 
as to whether or not some of his like rash decisions that he makes are because he's unwell, because he's had a stroke, because he's not thinking straight, mm. or mm. is he actually calculating all of this the whole time, you know? And 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 it really kind of rides that knife edge throughout the first season, I think, particularly. And mm. you're right, you know, he's unable to connect emotionally with any human being. And his his frustration is that even though he's getting old, he he has nobody in his world that he could trust with his empire, right? Like he he has no respect for any of his kids who didn't work for it like he did. None of them are cutthroat mm-hmm. enough. So he and 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 so you you get the feeling that all he's ever doing is manipulating and testing people and trying to figure out how he can turn one of them into the cutthroat killer that he is right and he's pushing them and pushing Mm. them and manipulating them yeah because he believes that there's only one way of existing and that's his way and he cannot see yeah the he cannot see the good parts of his kids or anyone around him and how to actually create a a proper succession plan Mm. because he's just trying to emulate himself and because he his kids are never going to be him then he just dismisses them yeah outright and and he's got that real he's got that nouveau riche thing as well of of being he's not he's not interested in, he's not really interested in money it, it, it's no. purely power right and he doesn't yeah. obviously he 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 lives in huge houses and he gets flown around in a helicopter but you know you don't see him wanting to go and eat the kind of rich people food he loves eating a burger he's like he he you know he thinks of himself as this kind of like everyday sort of blue collar american who's become really rich right and powerful and that's sort Mm. of what he is and you feel like he has no time for the world of rich socialites or you know all of that other bullshit that he's created around him he has absolutely no patience for it you know i don't think he's he's quite interesting because you're right he's not at all interested in the trappings of money money is just uh, a marker of power so like money can give you easier access to things uh, but he's not really interested in the emotional earnest things either like when Connor gives him sourdough starter <laughs> he dismisses that yeah. when Tom gives him a $10,000 watch he also dismisses that he doesn't really care about any of that be that from the heart or be that from the purse it is equally irrelevant to him because ultimately they're not they're not items of power he can't wield that yeah he has no interest in anything superficial but he also has no interest in anything human or emotional or any connection right it is just power and i think maybe the way to um I think Logan is maybe the person who will bring us to talking about the finale because in the finale is the only moment where actually his powers weakened when he's given the bear hack by Kendall when they're at Shiv's wedding. Is the it's the only moment where we see him panic. You know, even when he's having health issues, he's not panicking. But when he's given this um this is confronted with this hostile takeover he's like fuck i'm actually in a really bad position here i don't know i need to strategize how to get out of this yeah and the only way he actually gets out of it is because he finds something he can hold over kendall's head because kendall in a moment on a bender again in a moment of weakness he ends up in a car with a waiter from shiv's wedding they get high on ketamine and they get into a car accident and the waiter is killed and Kendall um, makes his way out, out of the lake, out of the car that's um, he's driven into the lake. And 
His dad cleans up his mess. And now he has this huge thing that he can hold over him and make him essentially into his puppet. It's such a tragic moment, isn't it? And and Kendall came so close. He came so close to winning, really, at the end of that. Because you're right, we see Logan in a real moment of weakness there where he's he's really cornered. And then that really sinister moment when he suddenly becomes an actual father to Kendall he hugs him and he says it's all right son and and Kendall sobs on his shoulder but you know that that's probably all bullshit really what Logan is of doing there is Logan bullshit. is going yeah I've won now I've got the power that's yeah. it you're it you are you're nothing you know now uh and you know and and this is the thing this is the running theme in this show Logan wins right like essentially mm-hmm. what happens towards the end um, you know the end of season two cliffhanger is an interesting one, but what happens generally throughout this show is that something is coming for, for, for Logan, whether it's the cruise ship scandal or whatever else, and yet he always pulls through and he always says money wins, mm. doesn't he? And, and mm. you know, nobody... And I think Tom even makes a, a point about that later on in season three, doesn't he? But he's kind of like, Logan always wins. You know, like there's no there's no stopping him yet where we're up to in the show. So he is he's formidable, he's terrifying, he's charismatic, he's enigmatic. And in this moment, you know, when he hugs a crying Kendall, mm. when he even in that whole scene the way it's framed, you know, Brian Cox is standing up, uh, uh Jeremy Strong is sitting down, he's sort of bumbling because he knows he doesn't know that his father knows mm. um and as they're talking about this accident he starts to break down despite himself and then he he gives him the morsels of what he wants but what he really wants is for kendall to uh renege on the bear hug yes he wants him to leave that maneuver aside because it's the only maneuver that he could not withstand uh that the business could not withstand so actually it's not really about protecting his son it's about a an ace that he's just been handed by sheer luck you know, that he that his people were the first ones to hand this, that he put two and two together. And Kendall confirmed it. And now he has this over Kendall's head. It is a horrific scene mm-hmm. because it just confirms what we were just talking about earlier. The only thing that Logan cares about and traffics in is in power. Yep. And in that moment, in the one moment that Kendall had power over him, very quickly transferred back to Logan. Yep. Yep, and there you go. And season one ends on such a tragic note. The 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 attempted rise and complete fall of Kendall Roy, basically, right at the hands of his father. It's it's so sad. In conclusion, therapy for Kendall, therapy for Logan, yeah, therapy for Shiv, definitely therapy for Roman Roy. And actually, this is maybe a nice a nice uh, time to ask you about your favorite episodes because uh, one of my favorite episodes in season one is the one where they all go to Connor's ranch for like family therapy. (laughs) It's like, it's so good. And I think we'll talk about this more in season two, but I love these kind of episodes where we are all as a family going to one location, some Mm. beautiful house somewhere in the world. And we just, we we put them all in a house together and watch them interact, you know? Mm. And that is something they really run with in season two. But that's that that's a real highlight episode for me, I think, in season one. Just watching Logan attempt therapy is just brilliant. <laughs> yeah, fake therapy. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and also, uh, 
I think one of my favorites of the season is the following one, the episode called Prague, which is, again, sort of a bottle episode where half the family goes to this underground party (laughs) to celebrate Tom's um, bachelor party. And we see a lot of the other machinations going about. This is the episode where Shiv and Logan have a heart-to-heart. It's the moment where Ken seemingly is like on a roll with his new sneakers and then he gets humiliated again, where he's one again being given an out by Stewie we haven't even mentioned Stewie who is this like business bro old third oldest friend of Kendall who time and time again tells Kendall exactly who he is and Kendall literally just like does not listen he's literally he's like Stewie can I trust you and he's like no but with business stuff can I trust you it's like no it's like I need to tell you this like really deeply confidential thing about Waste of he's like please don't tell me dude like I will do something with it that will go against your interest he's like so here's the tea so funny and Sandy Sandy and Stewie who remain the kind of like Yes. threat to to waste off throughout the whole show yes. up until this point right as well yeah i yeah. i absolutely love stewie and like the way in prague where he once again <laughs> tries to give kendall a way out he's like my guy do you would you like half a billion dollars yeah. just take the money and leave just take the money and invest in whatever the fuck you want yeah. just go and never work again go to therapy for the rest of your life i don't know like this is bad for you maybe get yeah. out and ken is like oh no <laughs> no i want to i want to run my dad's toxic company <laughs> i know what an idiot what an it's idiot so- it's just he's such a flop there's so many opportunities where all of these kids could go off and have a have themselves a lovely life and that's the thing we all laugh and mock we all laugh at and mock connor maybe connor's got it right out of all the kids right just go live on a ranch and have nothing to do with your family's empire yeah you know set up a, a podcast about napoleonic history <laughs> yeah exactly i know you know that's what we'd be doing um yeah it's yeah. it's funny but yeah an amazing episode and of course the finale is incredible and i love it whenever they go to mm. england i love it whenever dame harriet walter comes into it as lady caroline oh. like she's absolutely oh. incredible and of course this is so many so many british people involved in the making of this show including the creator right and they get they get england really right you know like you really feel like they get england and english (laughs) characters like there's a moment when they walk into like a corner shop and stuff and i'm like oh wow this is so british for like a big hbo (laughs) show you know i love that um so before we wrap up mike who do you think ultimately comes out on top by the end of season one like who has the most power and the most potential for power in the following in the following episodes well it's interesting isn't it i mean i would say that the person absolutely on top is logan by the end of the final episode it's logan but in terms of the kids you've got kendall at the bottom of the pile absolutely at the bottom uh shiv is not looking great either roman is sort of not in a great position either because he's just had the explosion happen like all of the essentially it feels like the message of the end of season one is like these kids haven't got a hope logan is ultimately still in control of everything right i don't know and and it's hard to know which of the kids is in a better position by the end of episode uh, of season one i think that the message is like fuck around with logan roy and find out even if you're his children yeah but i would say that shiv maybe has a little bit more political capital than Roman definitely not Kendall yeah. mainly because she hasn't fully 
come into the fold yet. So she has yet to fuck up colossally. Yeah. In the ways that she will down the line. Yeah, I would say it's 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 looking slightly more hopeful for Shiv. But ultimately, Logan has has won season one, hasn't he? Hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. Um, obviously, as we've already discussed, Anna, this show is known for its zingers, its incredible script. Do you have a favorite? And this is hard across a whole season. But do you have a favorite quote across <laughs> season one? I have too many. I have too many. <laughs> one of my favorite ones is Connor going, being so offended when Willis says that he doesn't actually do anything for work. And he's huffing and puffing and goes like, do you think that being on the verge of setting up a podcast on Napoleonic history with a significant amount of invested interest, that's nothing? <laughs> um, that's an iconic one for me. And also I loved Roman when he is talking to the Vulture, uh, the Vulture founder and says, that, you know, just because i like a joke doesn't mean i'm a clown yes yeah, so good so good oh very good so good uh the one that always sticks out to me that kind of makes me laugh so much that it almost makes me cheer is in episode 10 when roman is freaking out about the explosion and he discovers that <laughs> there are no there, there are no fatalities but somebody somebody lost a couple of thumbs and it's just so genius the joke when he goes Guess who didn't kill anyone, but maybe only lost a couple of thumbs? This guy. <laughs> just... It's just perfect. Well, there you go. That is episode one of the Successionistas. There's so much to cover, especially in that first season, right? But I'm very excited, Anna, because next week we are going to be moving on to, I think, what is my favourite season of the three so far, which is Succession season two. Yes, and I'm very excited about just getting to say the word the Successionistas many times over. <laughs> so next week we'll yes. drop the, the recap episode looking at the second series of Succession. The week after that we'll do the same with the third season. Season, and then once the fourth season starts airing we will be looking at each episode individually as they air so we'll put those episodes out a few days after the episodes have aired when everybody is losing their minds about what's going to happen next including ourselves yes hit follow subscribe listen to the successionistas wherever you get your podcasts and you can also follow me on twitter at Demented. and you can follow me on twitter at the movie mike i'm on instagram at mike munzer and for any scream fans anna we've got a little scream recap podcast we going do. on at the moment haven't we it's called hello sydney uh you can find it also wherever you get your podcasts if you're a scream fan we've got uh, deep dive episodes into Scream 1, 2, 3, 4 and 5 and we'll be looking at the upcoming uh, Scream 6 film as well. Thank you so much for listening and join us next week for part 2 of The Successionistas. The Successionistas! <laughs> you love that title. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs>